rush round with one straight away, please turn to Luke chapter 1. While you're turning there, let me tell you that next Sunday morning you are in for a special treat because I'm doing a pulpit swap with Bishop Joe Bell. Bishop Joe Bell will be standing here, God willing, next Sunday morning. And the title of his sermon is What to Do When Trouble Comes. And um, I won't uh, spoil it by explaining to you why he's chosen that title, but it does have to do with a particular personal challenge he's wrestling with at the moment. So Bishop Joe Bell here next Sunday. I'll be up in his church in Silvermine. Do please bring friends, family, neighbours, anybody and uh, it'll be a very special time. So I'm going to continue reading in Luke chapter 1 from verse 26, because this is going to be our main focus this morning. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. Well, Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would open our hearts and minds to your precious life-giving word. Pray that you would plant it deep within us and bring much fruit from it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Christmas uh, is a happy time. Um, It is right that we wish one another a happy Christmas. Because whatever our personal circumstances, whatever struggles and challenges we might be facing, The message of Christmas really is the best possible news. And yet, most people, and actually many Christians, will admit that there have been years 
when the Christmas message just seemed to pass us by. We've been to church, and we've heard the very familiar story of the birth of Jesus. But when New Year comes and we look back, we, we think to ourselves, do you know what, it's actually been just a wee bit dry and mechanical. For some reason, the message of Christmas never really got underneath our skin. Well, Luke wrote his book for people like that. You'll notice that he begins by informing us that he's written an orderly account. We saw that in verses 1 to 5, which Michael read at the beginning. What that means is that he's brought certain events together in an orderly way. Uh, those events might have been separated by months or perhaps even years, but Luke has arranged them so that we might be sure about the Christmas message. That's why he says in verse 4 that he wants us to have certainty. We don't have to be woolly about this. And uh, in our passage this morning, we've got a great example of the method because here we've got two extraordinary events in which the angel Gabriel, do you remember he appeared to Daniel, didn't he, in the Old Testament hundreds of years before? Here he is again. He appears to two different people with a message from God. Luke tells us there was a six-month gap between these two events, and no doubt lots of other things happened in between, but Luke has placed them side by side to teach us something about God and to teach us something really important about ourselves. Because Luke has put these events first in his book, we can safely assume that these things are of first importance. If we miss what he's saying here, we probably won't understand anything else in the Gospel. Clearly, the spotlight is on the second event, that is, Gabriel's visit to Mary uh, with the message about the birth of Christ and the coming of salvation into the world. We're going to focus most of our attention on that, but we'll kind of glance back to Gabriel's visit to Zechariah in order to help us understand why Luke has put these two things side by side. It's a long passage. We're not going to be able to pick up all the details. To help us grasp the main point, I want to draw your attention to the key elements. So first, please will you notice that when God's salvation comes into the world, it starts with an unexpected visit. It begins with an unexpected visit. People aren't expecting it. Now, uh, the events in Luke chapter 1 took place during a very dark time indeed. In verse 5, Luke tells us that it was the time when a man called Herod was king in Judea. Now, on every conceivable measure, Herod was a thoroughly nasty piece of work. Uh, he'd been crowned king by the Roman Senate about 35 years before. And ever since then, he'd become increasingly paranoid about rival claims to the throne. So, by the time the story begins here, Herod had already arranged the murder 
of three of his brothers-in-law, one wife, one mother-in-law, and three of his own biological sons. Elsewhere, we're told that when Herod heard about the birth of Jesus and that people were already calling him king of the Jews, he ordered the slaughter of all the boys in Bethlehem under the age of two years. So, think about it. As Luke's account begins, Israel are slaves in their own country. They're living under the rule of one of the most evil tyrants in history. So it's hardly surprising, is it, that many people were saying, you know what? God has forgotten about us. He actually doesn't care. To add insult to injury, there'd been no word from God for 400 years. So no prophets, no angels, no miracles, just silence. 400 years is a very long time indeed. To put that in context, here in South Africa, 400 years ago, Van Ribbeck hadn't even arrived in the Cape. So it's a very long time. Spiritually, this was a very dark time in Israel. But then suddenly, when people weren't expecting it, God sends the same messenger, not once but twice, in the space of six months. First, Gabriel brings a word from God to a priest in the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, this man enjoyed astonishing religious privileges. He had studied the Bible under the best scholars available, and his job was to encourage people to keep on trusting God's word. And yet, in spite of his pedigree, in spite of all of his learning, when the word of God did come to him, in actually the most natural setting, the temple in Jerusalem, Zechariah is totally unprepared. He doesn't believe it, he doesn't trust it, and the angel confirms his unbelief in verse 20. But then, six months later, Gabriel brings a second word from God. This time he skips over everywhere that's important. He doesn't go to Rome. He doesn't go to Jerusalem. He doesn't even go to the temple. Instead, verse 26, have a look at it. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Now think about this. The most important news ever delivered to mankind came to a small town in the middle of nowhere. In those days, Judea was the happening place in Israel. That's where all the important people lived. The Jews actually considered Galilee to be polluted. It was the land of the Gentiles. It was the place of people who were actually cut off and excluded 
from the promises of God. Nazareth was actually not much more than a stopping off place for Roman soldiers. It had its own red light district. It was morally depraved. And that's why I think uh, when Philip heard that the Christ had been born there in John's Gospel, he said, well, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, it was so unlikely. And this time, the messenger from heaven, he doesn't come to a king or to a priest. He comes to a young peasant girl. The best scholars believe she was probably no more than 12 years old. She was probably illiterate. And the little that she did know about God was what she'd heard in the synagogue on Saturday mornings. Now, friends, as I've been thinking about this this week, I think there's something really wonderful for us to take away from this. Because when God sent salvation into the world, it came at a time of spiritual hopelessness. It came at a time when the religious establishment had completely lost the plot and it bypassed everything that people thought was important. And it came to a lowly, ignorant virgin seeking to live a life of purity amidst the moral mess in her town. And that is the person that God chose to bring the Messiah into the world. I mean, it is just so unexpected, isn't it? We wouldn't have planned it this way. But you see, friends, so often that is actually precisely the way that God works. God breaks into our lives in times of darkness and confusion. And when we look at ourselves, we can't see that there's anything really very special about us. We might actually be extremely ignorant about Christian things. And the little we have heard, we're very unsure about. But then one day, when we least expect it, God steps in by impressing upon our hearts and minds, not just that we belong to him and that he loves us, but also that he's actually going to use us. Now, friends, that is not a rational thing. I can't give you a scientific explanation for it, because it's a miracle. But you know when it's happened, because you find that God has given you a new hope and a new purpose that you didn't have before. That's how it was for me. And my prayer is that if this hasn't already happened in your life, that God would do this for you. Might even be this morning. Because, you see, when God's salvation comes, it often starts with an unexpected visit. Second, when God's salvation comes, it includes a divine announcement. Now, in the passage immediately following this, we're told that when uh, Mary had recovered from the shock of Gabriel's visit... She was overjoyed. Now that is normal Christian experience. Whenever anybody finds themselves caught up in God's work of salvation, 
Joy is the normal and perfectly natural response. In fact, uh, Luke uses the word rejoice more than anybody else in the New Testament. Now, you see, what that means is that when we meet here on Sunday mornings, if there isn't an atmosphere of great joy, well, something's gone wrong. At the same time, we must get the balance. Because, you see, Christian joy doesn't come just from thin air. It's not a feeling or an emotion that we manufacture with loud music or an endless succession of songs that are all about us and say very little about God. That's not actually the joy that Luke has in mind at all. No, Christian joy comes from the impact of the gospel on my heart. Supremely, it comes from my relationship with the person at the centre of the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm sure you know this, but of course you can't actually have a relationship with anybody, or with someone in particular, if you don't actually know them. So if we're going to be a people of joy here at St. Barnabas, it is of supreme importance that we grasp at least two things about Mary's baby from Gabriel's announcement. The first concerns his kingship. So please look down to verse 32. Gabriel tells Mary, Your child will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, here... Before Mary's baby is born, Gabriel says that her baby is going to be a king from David's family and that his kingdom will last forever. Now, there's something here I'd never noticed before. If you want to sustain a dynasty that's going to last forever, you've got only two options. Either you've got to have an unbroken succession of kings from the same family or you've got to have a king who lives forever. There isn't actually a third option. If you think there is, please come and tell me about it afterwards. Now, our problem, I think, in understanding Gabriel's message is that you and I are so very used to a good ruler, a good president, a good king, being followed by somebody who is utterly incompetent with the inevitable scandals and corruption that, that come, off, come with him. And of course we all know, don't we, that that kind of inconsistency is extremely unpredictable and makes life very tiresome indeed. But you see, the Christian hope rests on the fact that we have a king who doesn't change. He's on the throne forever. And it means that when this king offers you a place in his kingdom, you can know for sure exactly what that kingdom will be like. There's no danger of this king being replaced by somebody else. And uh, if you accept his invitation, 
you will find that everything in his kingdom is exactly as he promised. But the second thing that we learn about Mary's baby, which is even more important if your concentration has wandered, come back to me now. The second thing that we learn about this baby concerns his conception. Please look at verse 35. In verse 35, Gabriel says to Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now you see, what Gabriel is saying, and this is so important, is that unlike every other baby before or since, Jesus will not be created at conception. Instead, as the Holy Spirit comes down upon Mary and she is overshadowed by the power of the Most High, God will come down from heaven and enter her womb. Now this is the greatest mystery in the universe. Again, I can't explain it. But you see, the picture here is of the vastness of the eternal sovereign God willingly linking himself with his creation and becoming a baby, doing all the things that normal babies do, being completely dependent on his mother for food and love and affection and learning to walk and talk, but at the same time, at the same time, he is never less than the God who played with the stars in the heavens and who controls the destiny of the entire universe and who holds all things together by the power of his word. Now, you and I will never in a million years be able to explain how God did it. But here's the interesting thing. We do know why. Because the language of overshadowing comes directly from the Old Testament. In fact, we find it in just the second verse of the uh, second verse of the Bible. Because at creation, we're told that the Spirit of God hovered over the waters of chaos. In other words, literally, he overshadowed the waters and he brought order into the world that God had made. And now in our passage, he overshadows Mary as God prepares to enter our world and bring about his new creation, bringing order out of all the chaos created by human rebellion and sin. You might be sitting there this morning thinking, well, is salvation really possible? Is God willing to save someone like me with all of the things that I've done? And verse 35 is saying, oh yes. You see, because of this miraculous birth, you can become a new creation with the same Holy Spirit who overshadowed Mary coming to live within you. 
bringing order out of all of the chaos in your soul. And when he does that, all of the promises of God become God's promises to you. Now that, you see, is why the Apostle Paul describes Christian conversion in precisely this language. Because there's a place, isn't there, where he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a, let me hear it, a new creation. A new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. How can this happen? How does a person become a new creation? Well, notice lastly that when salvation comes, the divine announcement leads to a growing response. You know, you and I belong to a generation of Christians who are absolutely fascinated by the very large uh, evangelistic rally. You know, we love to hear stories, don't we, of uh, Billy Graham's crusades, like perhaps the one that took place in Seoul, in South Korea, in the 1970s, where over a, spe- a period of, I think it was five days, Billy Graham addressed crowds in person, totaling 3.2 million people, and hundreds of thousands got converted. And here in South Africa, a few years ago, we loved those stories, didn't we, of the the men all trekking off to Angus Buchan's farm. Do you remember that? 500,000 men going to Angus Buchan's farm for a weekend, and by Sunday night, 100,000 have given their lives to Christ. We love that, and rightly so. You see, in those examples, there was an instant response to the gospel. And of course, it's exciting to hear about that. But I want to say to you this morning that the instant response is not actually God's normal way of working. No, God's normal way of working is far more understated. It's far less dramatic. But in the long run, it is so much more secure. And it's beautifully profiled for us in Mary's growing response. Follow this with me. Notice that when Gabriel appears and tells her that she is highly favoured, that the Lord is with her, Mary isn't immediately buying it, is she? Verse 29. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Mary's certainly listening, but she's, she's greatly troubled. She's wondering. Perhaps a better word might be pondering. No, she felt herself to be unworthy of such favor from God. And she's thinking to herself, you know, can God really be talking to me? I think that's very realistic, isn't it? You know, whenever the gospel begins to break into a person's life, the same thing happens every single time. It's unsettling. You know, on one level, we're attracted to the message, but at the same time, we also kind of pull back in fear. We say to ourselves, oh dear, you know, this looks like change. I don't like change. I'm going to take a step back. 
But notice, will you, that Mary doesn't turn away. She listens very carefully to God's plan for her life. And in verse 34, she has a question. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? That's really important to notice that she doesn't doubt the truth of God's message. No, she doesn't. She believes the word that is spoken, so her question is not a spiritual question, it's a biological question. She's saying, you know, Lord, I believe, but how? I'm a virgin. Now, surely, friends, this is why Luke has placed these two stories, Zachariah and Mary, side by side in his book. Because when God's word of salvation comes to us, there are only two possible responses. You know, either we can disbelieve, like Zechariah did, or we believe, but at the same time, we bring all of our how questions to God. And the point of this particular story is that God will work with that. He delights to answer the questions of a growing faith. Yes, he does. So, for example, God says, you know, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we, as a tiny church, say, you know, Lord, well, how? We've got very limited resources. And we're small. Most of the people we know are extremely hostile to the gospel. How on earth is this going to happen? And God says, go out into all the world and preach the gospel. I will be with you. I will be with you to the very end of the age. Notice, will you, in Luke's account that God responds to Mary's question asked in faith. By encouraging that faith still further, you'll find that in verse 36. Gabriel says, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. Do you see the, the goodness and the kindness of God in that? All of us have got how questions. But you see, so long as we bring those questions to God, trusting in his goodness and his love for us, not putting him in the dock, not putting him on trial, but asking him to increase our faith and dispel our ignorance, well, God delights to respond to that, giving us signs and encouragements to prove that what he has promised to us in his word, he will fulfill. So here, uh, Mary hears the news of God's amazing grace to Elizabeth. And so in verse 38, she surrenders her life to the will of God. Verse 38, she says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. See, Mary's response was a growing response, wasn't it? It wasn't instant, but it does bring her to this particular point. 
And you see, what Mary says here is the pattern for every true Christian. And can I tell you that this was a really seriously costly thing for Mary to say? Because in those days, if you were suspected of committing adultery, that was a death sentence. But by, you see, humbly submitting to God's plan, Mary was willing to open herself up to scorn and shame. But you see, she'd thought about it. She knew exactly what she was signing up for. And my question for all of you this morning is, can you say what Mary says here? Have you ever been able to say it? Because you see, we can't possibly experience Christ and his ongoing power within us without totally, totally surrendering our lives to him. That's how we become a new creation. Don't you want that this Christmas? Because you see, if you want to know what God's purpose for your life is, it is simply this. He wants you to look at the world which scorns the gospel, which despises Jesus, and to say with Mary, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Let's pray together. Father God, we praise you that you came into our world in the person of the Lord Jesus, bringing salvation. We thank you that you break into our lives by your spirit, through your word. And I pray this morning that it might please you to overshadow the churches in Cape Town this Christmas, bringing new birth, bringing new life. And Father, some here this morning are starting to trust your word, but they have questions. So Lord, please help them to bring their questions to you in faith. And as they do so, please give them clarity and certainty that they might be able to speak Mary's words from the heart and find the life of Christ born within them. For we ask it in his precious name. Amen.